You can prepare for everything that you can control, but that's not very much. My goal was just to hunt as hard as I could, as long as I could, at all costs. Better ask it, man. <laughs> Speak for yourself. 28 and sunny, we're almost definitely going to have hikers on the trail, boys. I'm getting across that damn river, and I'm getting after those goats. Let's go. We're hunting. We're going after something. <laughs> Hello friends, this is my, this is freaking weird thing to do, uh, I'm recording a podcast solo and I'm also taking the opportunity to uh, film it, first time filming, uh, that's not true, um, we've tried to film a couple in the past and I've always done something stupid and screwed it up, like uh, the one time I tried to film one using the, you know, my big camera, my, proper, my, my DSLR. And uh, didn't didn't consider that there was a maximum recording time, and it shut off after like twelve minutes. Idiot. Um, and I recorded another one that never actually aired. I did it. Um, it was a podcast I recorded with Sam Merrill. Uh, yeah, I don't know, just wasn't feeling that podcast, so I didn't air it. But I uh, recorded that one too. Um, again, screwed it up. I recorded it in too high of a resolution. I recorded it in like 4K or something. And it was just this monster file that I was never able to actually do anything with. So um, hopefully this time it works. I'm recording right there with, uh, I'm actually using my old Samsung cell phone. I've used that to make videos in the past, just you know, little goofy ones. And it's worked out pretty good. It's a real good phone scope camera. Um, yeah, so I wouldn't normally be recording solo. I had a whole bunch of cool guests lined up, uh, but you know the the COVID thing is coming back around, and it just sort of worked out that I probably shouldn't be having guests in this little plywood room that I call a podcast studio. I'm on the chamomile tea. Sorry if you can hear me drinking. Uh, if you follow along on social media, though, you'll have noticed that. I put out a couple of call-outs for some some questions. I thought this would be fun, just do a question and answer one. Uh, and we'll, we'll see how it goes. Oh, because of the COVID thing, I'm in the process of working out how I'm going to record uh, remotely with remote guests and still try and maintain some audio quality. I mean, I've bought all this nice gear, uh, but it's here. And, you know, if I don't want to have people coming into my house and vice versa, people don't want to come here, that's fine. I got to work out a way to keep these podcasts rolling while maintaining some level of good audio. That's just for me. And uh, if you've noticed that there's been a bit of a lack in podcasts lately, man, I've been so busy with work and hunting and the hunting sucks right now. So I've been hunting extra hard to make up for my sucky hunting skills. So yeah, I haven't been putting a lot of energy into putting out podcasts and I kind of said to myself that I, I would rather wait and put out quality podcasts opposed to putting out junky ones just for the sake of putting them out. I hope that's okay by all you listeners. Yeah, all right, let's start ripping into some questions. I, I got some beauties that came in and I'm, I'm, I'm actually, some of them are really funny. Uh, so the last, I think last week I put out the first call out. There's a bunch that came in for Nick, so maybe we'll try and do a, a, a phone call to Nick at some point, but we'll see how that works out. 
All right, this one's from Scott Chislett. Scott Chislett. Now, sorry, Scott, this is a hockey question, and Nick's totally the hockey guy. I am the absolute opposite of a hockey guy. So I'm going to have to do a quick bit of Googling here. Scott's question is, what do you guys think of the new Canucks jersey reverse retro? Is that what it said? What do you guys think about the Canucks new reverse retro jersey? Uh, Let's have a look. Reverse retro jersey. Oh, is it the black thing? The black one? No. Reverse retro jersey. So green with the green hockey stick and the blue stripe. I mean, looks like hockey jersey. It's pretty ugly in my opinion. I'm not a big hockey buff. If that's the one, if that green thing is what I'm supposed to be looking at. If that's it. Uh, yeah, I'm not a big fan. Sorry, Scott. Those questions are better fielded by Nick. They're not really for me. From who to Hendy? I like this one. This one's really good. I've been think- I, you know, this one he sent in to me the other day, so I've been thinking about this one. I like this one. Who to Hendy? Any elusive Bigfoot, Squatch, or any other weird things? So I'm assuming you're asking if I've had any Sasquatch experiences, etc. Turn that on silent. Sorry about that. Um, I haven't. I haven't had any good Sasquatch moments. Uh, the closest I've ever come to a Sasquatch moment was a. Uh, I was out hunting. I think I was hunting bears at the time. I was solo uh, in an area that. I hadn't been a lot at the time, but I've been back to a lot now. And I came across a, uh, a, a footprint in the, in the mossy ground. It was blacktail country. So in this footprint in the, like in the mossy, the moss, the mossy, whatever it is, grass that's, you know, that lines blacktail country. And it was, uh, easily twice the size of one of my boots. Um, and there was two of them at like a pretty, pretty decent gait. You know, like it was a quite the stride. It was a stride that I wouldn't be able to maintain for any length of distance. It was, you know, a, a stretch for me to put a foot in both pads. I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, my first thought was definitely Bigfoot or Sasquatch, which <laughs> I don't think I... I, I, I don't actually think there is a Sasquatch or a Bigfoot, but I really, really want there to be a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch. And I don't say, I, like, I don't, I don't think there's not a Sasquatch for some, like, compelling reason. Like, I don't have evidence to say there's not a Sasquatch. I don't, apart from the fact, the only reason I, I think there isn't a Sasquatch is that we would have we we would have found them by now? Is my only reason to say there isn't. Uh, but I'd love to be proven wrong. It would be really cool if there was Sasquatch. Imagine if there was like, you know, a monster running around the, in the woods. That'd be pretty cool. Apart from the other monsters, the cougars and the bears and the other stuff that wants to kill you in North America. I uh, 
a, a while, probably a year, maybe two years ago on the Need Eater podcast, they had on a, a guest and I forget her name completely, but she was a, she was a Bigfoot enthusiast and she had a podcast about Bigfoot called uh, Wild Thing, Wild Thing, Wild Things. And I got right into that. It wasn't there wasn't that many episodes, maybe a dozen episodes, but they were like that. They were that different kind of podcast where it's super over, not overproduced, super produced. You know, sound effects, um, interviews, cutaways. Like, like, yeah, they actually spend some time building an episode, opposed to me that just sits down and dribbles shit for up to an hour. Um, and I, I listened to those, and they were really cool. Like she was going all over the place. She wasn't a hardcore Sasquatch Bigfoot believer. She was kind of subjective on the whole thing, whether or not Bigfoot existed, but she was doing the research. She might've even been some sort of journalist, gave us some credibility, um, credibility in like being able to conduct an investigation report on it, not credibility on Sasquatch. But that was a good series. Check that one out. It's called Wild Things. She even had on a, uh, this is actually funny. She had on a, an author called, Called, uh, Virginia something look it up and she wrote a uh, she wrote a series of books about Bigfoot erotica oh that's right it was called come for Bigfoot <laughs> so I bought that whole series of books called come for Bigfoot for my boss for Christmas one year obviously he deserved it anyway check it out man what was her name Virginia Wade Virginia Wade is the author that writes the dirty ass come for Bigfoot stories. It was crazy. Like I read the blurb on a couple of it and it was, <laughs> it was like a camping trip gone wrong where these girls, <laughs> these girls and guys were out in the bush and Sasquatch came along and wanted to get frisky. Pretty, pretty funny stuff. <laughs> Check it out. Wild things. So who to Hendy? That's where I'm at on Bigfoot. Um... Where's it gone? A really good one here that I really liked. And I will find it. Apologies. Some of them were stupid because people sent in stupid questions, obviously. Uh, This one's from Noah Redka. He sent in two. One of them I may or may not answer. Not because it's stupid, just because I haven't done enough research to answer it sensibly. And, uh, this is from yeah, from Noah. Any BC specific things for a beginner to think about when chasing early archery muleys? <laughs> um, any BC specific things for a beginner to think about when chasing early archery muleys? Well, no, I'm not sure if you're a beginner hunter or a beginner archer. Or let me have a look at your Instagram profile and see if I can get a handle on you. Um, Oh, you got some cool photos on here. I'm not I'm not seeing a ton of hunting photos, so I'm not sure if you're a big hunter or not. Oh, you got some pictures of some sheep, which is pretty cool. Cool, man. Um, Okanagan bighorn. Okay, so earlier I'm I this is all very fresh in my mind because uh, Nick, who's not here just sent me a draft preview of the film that he's been working on for a year now from 2019 
when uh, we were hunting, Devon was hunting sheep with a rifle and I was hunting early season muleys with a bow. Um, so your question is very, I've had a fresh reminder about how to feel about early season archery for muleys. Any specific things for a beginner to think about? Uh, definitely maybe spend, this is how I did it. Um, kill an early, se- early season mule deer with a bow is a tall order for anybody, especially a beginner. Um, and in the 2019 season when I did it, yes, I, I 100% considered myself a beginner in that realm. I, I, you know, had hunting experience before that, but to go after these early season mule deer with a bow, I was totally out of my comfort zone. And it shows, you'll see that in the, the film when Nick puts the finishing touches on it and releases it, you'll see that. Um, just for peace of mind and comfort, I would try to have a really good rifle year before you go ahead and do the, the archery hunt, if that makes sense. So I was, in 2018, I just had a, a smoking year where I, I cut a lot of tags I uh, had a lot of meat and I had enough meat to float me through what might be a, a, a low success rate season. That was, granted, I tried to do archery for the entire season, not just for the archery mule deer hunt. So if you're going to do archery for an entire year, make sure you've got some meat to back it up. With the specifics to the hunt you're talking about, Put in a shitload of research, uh, and I don't mean like Google. I mean get out there and like research the deer that you want to that you want to hunt. Um, go in there with some trail cameras. Go in there with some salt. One thing I've learned about with placing salt and trail cameras, especially for archery, and I learned it in the field in 2019 hunting these deer. The salt will change their behavior if you've done it properly. Like if you just go and put salt in some random spot, yeah, you might get a couple of deer that come and check it out and they may come back again. Who knows? But if you can get salt in their zone and if you can get in there early enough, so if you can get in there in the spring or, you know, get in there as soon as you can, I assume you're talking about high country because it's early season, get in there early as soon as the snow's off, um, or if it's a spot you've been working, get the, get the salt in there early so that the deer get used to it, get accustomed to it, get a camera on the salt, um, and that the salt will change their behavior, right? And so think about that. So now when you go back to hunt, know that those deer are going to either be coming to the salt or leaving the salt or maybe even on the salt. Um, it didn't really occur to me until I was on that 2019 archery hunt all the deer that i was seeing were coming to and from the salt and the salt was the salt was in a good spot um but i couldn't see the salt from where i was glassing so i would basically uh i was stalking moving deer most of the time and it didn't work out so what i was doing in the end was i the 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 deer would be making their way towards the salt so I would, I would, and the, the salt was in the timber. So I would then go to my GPS and I would start navigating towards the pin of my trail camera. 
And that's how, and that was how I got the closest to any of the deer on that hunt was, uh, using the salt to my advantage as a bit of a, a bit of bait, essentially, you know, use that, use it to your advantage. And now I've just started doing that with all, all my salt and camera placements is, uh, be aware that the salt will change the deer's behavior and you should, you could be able to use to your advantage. Like maybe you can put the salt within rifle range of, this isn't specific here, archery hunt, no, sorry but you might be able to put the salt within rifle range of a glassy knob or a good vantage. Um, yeah, that's about all I've got for specific tips on the archery. I mean, I haven't been successful on an early season mule deer hunt with the bow, so I'm I'm doing the best I can. But that was one one takeaway I definitely came up, uh, I definitely had from that hunt was uh, using the salt location to my advantage. Next question. Um, Noah's other question, I'll read it out, but I, I don't really have a good answer for him. Um, no, it was any resources that you would recommend on hunter densities and success rates, etc. Uh, I'm sure there is. I just haven't, I can't give you a legitimate answer right now, but I will. I can do some research for you, buddy. Okay. Oh, come on. Where are these things? All right, I like this one. This one just came this one came in from uh Juby 14. What do you got going on, Juby? Oh, private account. What are you hiding, Juby? Um all right, the question is biggest tip that has increased your overall hunting success. Biggest tip that's increased my overall hunting success. Um, geez, I don't know. Nothing's really jumping out as a the tip, but there is definitely a series, not a series. In my mind, when I'm hunting, certain things that people have told me over the years definitely come back and replay. Um, and they're not even. They're not even that great of tips, but they are good. Um, one of the ones that I learned really early on, like back in Australia, I learned this one really early on. <clears throat> Don't look for it when, you, when you're glassing, and, and this refers to open country glassing, like big open country or even in the timber. Don't look for a deer. Look for parts of a deer. Uh, that was one that got told to me and that one's done me a lot of good. So, and it makes sense too. Like, obviously you, when there's a deer standing broad daylight, broadside, you're going to see it. But most of the time they're not. So, uh, yeah, look for parts of deer. Look for the horizontal line of the back. Look for the flick of a tail. Look for the twitch of an ear. Um, look for the legs moving. Uh Look, just looking for parts of deer, trying to focus in on individual pieces. Look for an ear, look for the white of the butt patch, things like that. Um, another good one that, and I struggle with this one all the time, just absolutely constantly. I constantly remind myself of this. Um, hunt where the animals are, not where you want them to be. And that takes, you, you got to think about that for a second, but Hunt where the animals are, not where you want them to be. So, 
in the big country, well, any country, um, and actually in the timber is a really good example too. You know, you're walking through thick timber and you notice there's a clearing coming up and you're all of a sudden hopeful that, oh, I'll get to that clearing where I can see a little ways and I'll be able to see a deer. But that's where you want the deer to be, but more than likely the deer's still in the thick cover where you are. So, you know, stay the course, hunt the thick cover, hunt where the deer are, not where you want them to be. And then so in an alpine situation, just because there's a pristine piece of alpine there and it's, you know, south facing and it's grassy and there's a little bit of cover, if the deer aren't there, stop hunting there. They're obviously somewhere else. Um, I liked that one. And then one I learned recently, and this was from my, uh, my mate Dylan, um, and this one, this one comes up all the time in my mind. Don't step on something you can step over and don't step over something you can step around. And that, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you could take that a hundred different ways, but to me that it really makes sense in the blacktail woods or in any sort of old growth forest. Don't, st- and I'm sure that I think Dylan implied it as a safety thing, you know, don't take unnecessary risks like jumping on logs and going over logs, things like that. But for me, it really resonates because when you're in those those old growth forests and you step on a downed log that you think is solid, it's just soft, like a tissue box and it crumples and makes a ton of noise. So I don't step on anything on the forest floor that I can, I don't step on anything that I can step over and I don't step over anything that I can step around. And that I use it to minimize my sound and my impact in the area. Um, just the last couple of days here we've been hunting blacktail and there's a there's a there's patchy snow up in the up where we're hunting and it's super crunchy so i'm using that same tactic again i'm not stepping on the crunchy snow even though i want to go i want to be on the other side of the snow i'm i'm going around the snow and i'm using that same mentality of don't step on something you can step over and don't step over something you can step around. So they're three tips that sort of stay with me most of the time. I haven't, I really can't think of like a game changer, like boom, you know, mic drop tip that somebody's given me, but try those ones out. Let me know what you think. If people have, if people have like one line of tips, I'd love to hear them. Send them in. That'd be great. From, uh, oh, this is a good one. (laughs) From Cascade Outdoors. Why did you choose First Light over other brands for your hunting clothing? Um, good question. Um, my hunting partner, probably my main hunting partner, Devin, he, uh, he started using First Light. And I was using uh, I was using Sitka and Sitka and a couple of just like mountaineering brands at the time, but mo- mostly Sitka. Like my down jacket was a uh, like a yeah a mountaineering brand. Um, what else do I have there? And anyway, it was all synthetic. And then Devin started getting into the, Devin was into the first light stuff pretty hard. Everything he had was first light. And 
he was always way warmer than me, like way warmer than me. And I was just chalking it up to me being Australian, not used to the cold. He's used to the cold, but he was, he was wearing less clothing. I was wearing everything I owned and I was contemplating wrapping myself in my sleeping bag when we were glass and he was just chill. Um, so that was sort of peak of my interest. I'm like, oh, well, he's warmer than me. And then I started doing research into merino wool, um, which if you don't know about merino, merino has like tons of benefits. The It's definitely warmer than, than synthetic layers. Um, if it gets wet, it keeps you warm, where a synthetic layer that gets wet is, uh, is not going to do that. And uh, if you do... Uh, it, downside is that if you do get the merino wet it takes a lot longer to dry than a synthetic layer does but um i'm not in the habit of going out in the bush and getting super wet and then the i was growing tired of i was growing tired of wearing my sitka layers on a hike in and then what would happen to the clothing after i put a good sweat into it i felt like it would turn into a like a like dirty plastic wrap. It was just real yuck. I felt like it didn't breathe anymore. It stank almost instantly. It made me stink. And like, I'm not, I don't wear deodorant. I'm a, typically I'm a BO free kind of guy. And I would, when I would hike in, in my Sitka stuff, I would get pretty stinky. I shouldn't be shitting on Sitka because they make great stuff, but it was Sitka gear that I was wearing. So I started looking around for some different gear. Uh, Devin lent me a couple of the merino layers for a hunt and yeah, I was just, I was blown away that how fresh I felt after a day's hike. Actually, yeah, like hiking in, in like September in merino layers, I didn't feel like I sweat more or less, even though like it's definitely a heavier shirt. Um, I just felt fresh. I just felt real clean, real good. And then like even on day seven, day eight, day nine, it's still feeling good. It's not feeling rank. And uh, First Lights are just a, as a brand, I felt like I really, we had the, I felt like we had the most in common. Um, First Light supports backcountry hunts and anglers heavily. Um, they just, yeah, I felt like, as a, as a brand and a company, like if I had to, if I had to go and have beers with a brand, it would be First Light over Sitka probably. <laughs> um, I looked at some of the Kuyu stuff as well, the Kuyu clothing. Um, I probably shouldn't be saying bad things about brands, but I don't know. That brand definitely didn't speak to me. Um, even though I know their clothing's like pretty, pretty sweet. I've Taylor's got some Kuyu gear. Sean's got some Kuyu gear and I, I do like some of their stuff, but the uh, as a brand, it just didn't really didn't connect with me. First Light did, so I went all out. First Light. If you if you're on the fence about getting gear, um, and you don't want to stink and you don't want to feel gross, I'd definitely say check out the Merino and I, and all the brands offer Merino now, so it's not just you don't have to do First Light, but. I did. I like it. I'm not going to, I don't regret it. I'm not going to go back. Hope that helped. Bit of a rant. Sorry. Kirky Marks. What have we got here? Kirky. Let's see what's up. Cool. US listener. 
Sweet. All right, let's do a good job for Kirky. Um, his question is, best way to get a tasteful grip and grin photo after the sun has gone down? Oh, geez. I know exactly the photo you're talking about. Um, wow. I know how to, I don't know how to do it. I know, I know the bad photos that you're talking about. You're talking about the photograph where there's headlights or headlamps illuminating the thing and people's faces are overexposed and it just doesn't, the photo doesn't do it justice. I know exactly what you, I know exactly what you mean. Um, this is probably a good question where Nick could chime in and talk about using uh, artificial light to in, in improve the situation in a professional way. From a photography standpoint, I don't think I could... I mean, I've done some some artificial lighting, like here in the podcast studio, lighting up rifles and things like that, but doing a... Uh, Doing it in the field would be hard to replicate. I mean, I've had Sean out here before, and he was filming some uh, filming me with the bow a couple of times, and he had artificial lights set up, and it looked great. I don't know how you would replicate that in the field. Um, I'm sure it could be done if you were real crafty and you had some headlamps and you had some people stand still and uh, you know had some people help you out and you and you spent the time to do it. But yeah, I don't know if that's it's just not a, it's not a good look. That dark trophy shot, grip and grin, um, yeah. And then at that point, it's dark and everyone. You're probably rushing. You want to get it done quick because you want to get the animal dealt with and back to camp. So you might not be taking the, the time and the, the effort to, just do the necessary steps to create a good grip, a good grip and grin to begin with. And that would be like making sure the blood's covered up, um, making sure the tongue's not hanging out of the mouth, uh, doing something with the eyes, whether you want to commit to both eyes closed or both eyes open, um, things like that. And just to make the animal look respected in, you know, in its, in its pose, like, you know, you might want to change, change its pose, like maybe, have it sort of like as if it was bedded. Um, there's not, I mean, big animals are obviously different, but there's nothing great about a clearly dead animal that, and you've sort of just cranked its head up for a photo. It's, you know, if you can spend a bit of time and get the legs to sit a little bit better and yeah, just to spend some, if you're going to do the photo, like at least do the animal justice and have it represented in a good light. Um, but as for the after dark ones, I'm going to have to check in with Nick and chat to him about the nighttime photography because I'm not a great photographer. I'm, I'm, I'm still learning. So sorry, mate. I wanted to do a good answer for you because you're a US listener, but I'll have to check in with Nico. Matt Miles films. Okay. Matt's a friend of mine. I, um, Matt, oh, he's English. That's right. He, uh, I met Matt on the one of the Eat Wild backpack trips. He showed up there, and he uh, he's a filmmaker. So we were chatting back and forth about cameras, films, and photos and stuff like that. And obviously, he knows way more than me. I'm just a goofball with a camera that every now and then gets half a decent photo. But anyway, Matt's Matt's going 
hard in the paint and the hunting this year. I know he's filled a couple of tags, and I'm really looking forward to having a, uh, an in-depth chat with him. His question is, how do you know when a hunting spot is no good? I keep going back chasing sign. Well, shit, dude, if there's sign there, it's, uh, there's obviously something there. And if the sign's fresh, there's definitely something there. Uh, put your mind at ease, dude. Get yourself some trail cameras. Set up some trail cameras. Um, I've got a couple of spots that I wrote off. Just wrote them off. I said, these spots are garbage. Um, if there's animal and like same thing, there was sign. But if there was animals there, I certainly wasn't seeing them and I wrote them off. They were done. I was not doing them. And then somebody got me a trail camera for Christmas one year. And I didn't, I just hadn't gotten into trail cameras yet. Somebody bought me some trail cameras, my mother-in-law. And it was Christmas time and I really didn't know where to go. So I was, but I was, I was jonesing to get these things out. So I was like, well, let's just go hang them up in that shitty spot where there's no animals. So I went for a drive, went for a drive, uh, hiked to, oh man, I must probably hike to probably two hours to get into the, the spot that I hated. And I hung these trail cameras and didn't think much of it. Went back a week later and whoa, big buck on the trail camera. And then all of a sudden my interest was peaked in that area. Um, so somewhere that I had written off because I was only seeing sign and not animals, I, I uh, threw up some trail and, and I, it, it answered it for me. And now I spend a lot of time hunting there and we got a lot of trail cameras in that area now. So that's a good way to actually decide if an area is worth pursuing is, you know, put up some cameras, let them do the work for you. They're scouting when you're not there. When you're at work, they're scouting. They're also going to, drive you absolutely insane um like absolutely insane because you're going to get things where like the the bucks there 10 minutes before you get there things like that i would try that i I wouldn't write off a spot until you've confirmed it um you know if you throw up some cameras and you're just getting does i mean even then like leave the camera up through the rut at least because like some big stonkers might come through in the rut so I don't know. If you're getting animals there, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't write it off. Um, if the area is huntable, if the area is huntable, and there's something in there worth hunting, you need the trail cameras. I wouldn't write it off. I would adapt your hunting style to solve that problem that that, that hunt is. At least that's the that's the personal battle that I'm having right now with this spot. It's not a type of. It's not a spot that. I'm particularly strong at it's not a it's not the type of hunting that I'm that I'm good at and that probably makes me a bad hunter in a way because I, I I've since realized that my hunting strengths lie in big country where even shitty hunters get an opportunity to see some animals and every now and then get lucky and get a shot off um this timber hunting thing man that's for the hardcore ninjas and I'm trying to get there and if I if I didn't have that camera that trail camera verification to confirm with me that it was worth pursuing, I'd pull the pin in a heartbeat. But 
So uh, I hope that answers your question, Matt. Don't write it off until you really need to. I've written off one spot. One spot. I've, ri- I've written off a couple of spots where like I didn't enjoy the hunt. I knew there was animals there, but I didn't enjoy the hunt. Um, high traffic areas, I'll write off. And that's not to say there's not animals there. It's just I don't want to. I just don't want to do that kind of hunt. So get a, get a couple of cameras up there, dude. That's that's your best move. I wouldn't write anything off just on the animals you're not seeing. Uh, if if I was in the mood for sharing, which like I'm never gonna share this information. So <laughs> I would uh I'd tell you more about this spot, but it's um. The trail cameras are what keeps bringing me back. How's that? Okay, Matt. Oh, I like this one. Um, this one's from my buddy Derek Gray. Uh, Derek's a chef and he works up at Row 14 in Corston. And if you're ever up in Corston or Carameas, stop in and get a feed. Um, the It's a restaurant on a vineyard or a pretty sure it's a vineyard or an orchard or something like that um but yeah Derek's up there and he's just like he, he picks up baskets of vegetables and fruit and stuff and walks into the restaurant and starts cooking with them it's insane food insanely fresh really cool you walk in there and they just got he's got this giant centerpiece kitchen with a I don't know what he calls it but it's a big open fire and they do a bunch of baking in there and it's pretty sweet uh, if you're taking, you want to take your lady friend out. That's where you. That's where you got to take her. Row fourteen. I want to. I want to discount my next meal for that, Derek. His question is: As a father, what's the one thing your kids, not kid slash kids, ask to take with you or bring back? I I bring rocks back. Okay, so let me just get that together. As a father, what's one thing your kids ask you to take with you or bring back? Um, I know someone else that used to, that would collect rocks. Uh, my buddy Reed from Ontario, he uh, he came out to hunt some mule deer with us. We were on a backpack trip and, I, and he was loading up his backpack with rocks and I couldn't work it out. And yeah, they were for his kid. Um, my kids don't ask me to take them anything or bring them anything um my my daughter like my son he's uh he's eight months old so he's not asking for anything but my daughter who's now very aware that i go hunting for extended periods of time and she's i don't think she's used to me not being around but she's she's familiar with me not being around uh, for hunting trips when I come back, she's always a bit snaky with me. So that's why I say she's not used to it. She she doesn't like me going. But she just always, she makes me promise that I'm going to come back, which is kind of heartbreaking at the time. She's like, you, you're going to come back, right, daddy? So I, I always come back. But something I do pick up, when this is like, um, this is the love doctor coming out right now. When I'm out there, you've I uh, pick up, I pick up alpine flowers or I pick up any flowers that, we don't have in Chilliwack and I'll just put them between two bits of paper or I'll put them, I'll just tuck them somewhere. If you've got nothing else, tuck them between two bits of toilet paper and then throw them in your bino harness, throw the flowers in there and I press them and I dry them and I give them to my wife. Um, and uh, it just, it came about, 
How did it come? It came years ago. It just came about, and I was just I. That sounds kind of corny, but I was just thinking. I was I was alone. I was hunting solo, and I was thinking of my wife, um, and yeah, like I probably missed her at the time, and I uh, so I grabbed I grabbed a bunch of flowers because I was thinking of her. She was on my mind, and I wanted to, I wanted to do something nice to her. And like, what am I going to do when I'm in the bush? So I. I picked her an array of flowers and I bring them back and I gave them to her and uh, she really liked it. It's a it's a good way to tell your lady friend that you know you are thinking about her when you're out there. That's right. And now now she's got a whole collection of these dried pressed flowers. She puts them in frames. They look really cool in the house and yeah, they got a bit of a story too, like the flowers that you picked on a hunting trip. So nothing for the kids, but something for the wife. So I hope that helps, Derek. Get on that one. I know a couple of my mates have adopted this, uh, and great success. Um, their lady friends are definitely wooed. <laughs> Lee McDonald, old McDonald. That's Lee from uh, the Goat Alliance. Why are you so cool? And when can we hunt? To- when can we go hunt together? I uh, don't know why I'm so cool. I- I- I'd argue that I'm not. I mean. I don't know if you've noticed, dude, but I'm sitting in my garage right now talking to myself with a microphone. So that would be the definition of uncool if if I was asking. Uh, when can we go hunt together? We can go hunt together anytime, man. Um, the rules are a bit sticky for you to come hunt in BC, especially with COVID. But a US resident coming up to Canada to hunt, you, you really don't need a guide unless... Uh, we're, we're, we're related, which I don't think we are. Um, you could, yeah, I mean, you can't, I would say you could marry my sister, but she's married off and got kids and stuff. So she's, you know, that's done. Um, I'll have to come down there and hunt in the States with you where you got non-resident tags going out the wazoo. Ben's a lot. He's a, he's a local buddy of mine, Ben here. What would you recommend for a decent backpack and hunting boots? Oh, dude, that's a mic drop question because you can, (laughs) there's so much good stuff on the market. Um, Boots, there is, I mean, for, for the boots, I would only speak to what I've had personal experience with. I wouldn't speculate anything else or, or at least my, my close hunting partners have had good experience with, um, I wouldn't recommend lowers, lower boots. I know a lot of people have had lifetime of good luck with lower boots. I have had really bad luck with lower boots and and um, probably half of the people I know that use lower boots have had bad experience. Um, mostly that they leak um, and the warranty sucks and yeah. Don't get lowers. Uh, if it's any, if this, if this uh, paints a picture for you at all, even Cabela's stopped carrying lower boots. So, um, you know, read between the lines there. But I've had a lot. I've had really good luck with the Zambaland boots. Um, I put about six six hard years into a pair of Zambaland boots before they finally uh, started to come apart. And they didn't even really come apart. It's just the sole wore out, and uh, it was the Zambaland. V Vios Vios GTX something like that, um, 
And at the time I didn't realize, but those boots can't be resold. So if you, when you're looking at boots, especially when you're dropping five, $600, when you're looking at those boots, try and get a pair that can be resold. Because I mean, if you treat them right, if you treat leather boots correctly, the thing that you wear out should be the sole, not the leather. Um, if you treat it correctly. So I was in a situation where the, uh, the sole was just getting kind of slick for mountain hunting. You know, the boots were fine. They were just getting kind of slick and I couldn't get them resold. So I ended up getting a replacement pair. That's when I went through a bit of a lower stage. Um, big mistake. I just had wet, wet, heavy feet all the time. Um, didn't fit great. And I've always been a leather boot guy. Always been a leather boot guy. Like I, I was in the Air Force cadets when I was a kid. So I loved polishing boots. I love to, you know, getting a shine on boots and then so then coming into hunting and hiking or just outdoor footwear, um, you know, keeping the oil to the boots and keeping the leather clean was, it came naturally to me. It was really easy for me to do and I, I liked doing it. It's sort of just a bit of a bit of meditation, you know, to clean your boots and put some oil on them. After I got out of the lowers, I... Uh, even with my love of leather boots, I wanted to try something different. I was on a bit of an ultralight kick and I wanted to try some synthetic boots just because they were so much lighter. And I got into a pair of uh, La Sportiva Trango Cube. Um, and they're, they're a mountaineering boot. They're a super stiff sole. When I first put them on, they were the stiffest boot I'd ever worn. I mean, the, the Zamalans were super stiff. The lowers were super stiff. These things were next level. It, it honestly felt like a piece of plywood was screwed to the bottom of my foot. I, I had no no flex at all, um, but God, were they light. They were such a light boot and comfy, super comfy. Once you, once you get used to how stiff they are, um, they were just super comfy and I, I still, I'm still wearing those. They're good and they can be resold. So yeah, I mean like I can only talk to what I've had experience with. And so I, I would recommend checking out anything in the Zamberland line and the, the, and not anything in their line. I'm, I'm, I'm always steered towards the upper end of somebody's line. I want to see what like their top two or three models are. Okay. Um, so the Zamberland was, really good the last sportiva i'd definitely come back for another pair of last sportivas uh a boot that i haven't used but uh a lot of my hunting partners do devon runs them sean runs them uh is the the han han hanwags hanwags and i think they're hanwag alaska maybe something like that um they're a nice boot and you, you want to be, nobody wants to be spending it, but you're going to spend 500 bucks and up on a pair of boots. Um, some of those synthetic boots go up to like 800 bucks. Some of the scarpers and things like that, which uh, I'm probably going to stick with a, I'm probably going to stick with the synthetic boots just now that I've had them. Uh, you've still got to keep them super clean, but they're so light and they're just so, uh, I don't know. They just, I just, I feel like they're on another level. There's none of this, like, you, you're never worried about the, the leather getting waterlogged and wet and frozen. The boot is just what it is. There's no 
porous material that can absorb water and get waterlogged and then freeze. I've had to put my I had to put my feet in frozen lowers enough times that I don't want to deal with that anymore. As much as I still love leather boots, I really do. Um, and then the other half of the question was backpacks. I mean, all the backpacks. I shouldn't say that because there is some shit out there. Um, I run a seek outside backpack. Uh, and y- y- yes, I, I have a relationship with seek outside where whatever I, I trial, I trial their gear in exchange for content, but I have been using that backpack long before that relationship. I paid full retail for that backpack and I do it again tomorrow and tomorrow and I just keep I swear by that backpack. What you're looking for in a backpack is, uh, I think the biggest thing is going to be in the frame. Um, if you think about the purpose of a frame, I mean, we're going to, we can't go deep diving on backpacks here, but, uh, the purpose of the frame is to transfer the weight to, to the, the hips. So if you can take a frame and like if it's got aluminum stays that you can bend over your knee, like bend it over your knee and then throw it back in the dumpster because that's where it belongs. It's garbage. Um, you should have a very rigid, vertically rigid frame. If it's got some flex to allow, you know, your body to rotate when you're walking through the hills, that's the key. So, um, the seek outside has that it's got a, an aluminum a tubular aluminum frame that pivots. Um, it's hard to explain on a podcast to understand. But yeah, the, the Seek Outside make a really good backpack. Um, and then all I mean, Devin runs a mystery ranch. He seems super stoked with that. Um, Taylor runs a Kafaru. Like he's never had problems with that one. So yeah, those brands, I th- I've seen people, I've hunted with people that have got the Stone Glacier. I never tried one on for myself. Um, the one guy that I, that I was on a hunt when I had my, my seek outside and another fella had the, the stone glacier, his backpack looked a hell of a lot more uncomfortable than mine did. He had to take it off a bunch of times. Whereas I maintained, I kept mine on. Yeah. I mean, look for the bigger brands again. You're going to be spending a lot of money. You're going to be spending 800 Canadian, probably minimum, 800 Canadian minimum. Uh, ben, you're welcome to come and try. Anybody's welcome to try my Seek Outside on. And um, I think once you try it on, you'll, you'll you'll see what I see and you'll be placing an order with Dennis down there. Um, okay. What have we got here from Fraser Valley Adventures? How can we get involved in conservation in our area, either through BHA, BCWF or others? Um, Yeah, that's a great question and a question that I'm happy to answer. Uh, BHA, like that's that's, that's easy. Um, Reach out to me and I'll get you involved. That one's a simple, that one's a simple, especially if you're in region two, reach out to me and I'll put you in contact with everyone and we'll get you out to an event. Uh, not that we're doing too many events right now through COVID. Uh, although there is a river cleanup coming up, I think this weekend in Chilliwack, uh, 
my man Eric Schatz has put that together. So I think that's the... Tw- we better get, I better get this podcast out before then so that you guys can hear about this. I think it's this weekend, um, the 20-something of November. I'm going to confirm that and post it up. But yeah, the BHA ones are super easy because it's the it's just it's a community of people and it's we're all super friendly, really easy to like tap into. Uh, there's generally a ton of great people there that have got connections again that you can then tap into those connections. It's just a really good network there through through the BHA. But to get involved is is simple. Yeah, like shoot me a text um, and I'll. Uh, not that, not that's the only way, but shoot me a text and I'll I'll get you hooked up and we'll uh we'll, we'll go from there. We'll we'll plan something. Uh, if not, then just get get onto like the social channels. Reach out on there. Just just start the conversation. It's these organisations. They're not. Well, I'm not speaking for BCWF here. I, I actually know very little about BCWF um, BHA's where where I spend my time. That's where I volunteer my time. There's not this great infrastructure in place where it's hard to tap into. Um, there's no application process to become a member. It's This is grassroots conservation. Like I've got a full-time job and I'm raising a family. Uh, all the other regional directors are in the exact same boat. You know, they're, they're students, they're parents, they're, uh, you know, this, nobody's doing this full-time. This isn't some giant organization that's well, I mean, it's a giant organization it's it's not some big business thing where you know it's a there's big processes to get involved it's literally boots on the ground gumboot conservation um and it takes expect here in region two especially it takes there's there's no barrier of entry it's arms wide open come and see us bring it on but for Fraser Valley Adventures, um, you're in the Fraser Valley, so this cleanup in Chilliwack would be great. Come out and meet some people, bring a mask, with no doubt there'll be some COVID stuff in pla- in place. All right. Um, I've got a, one here from Tyler. This is from Wilderness Locals. Can you explain or talk about the progression slash development of skills required to make the jump from deer hunting to harder to kill slash find game like mountain goat, mountain goat and sheep? Oh, he's got a follow up question. All right. So two questions. Can you explain or talk about the progression slash development of skills required to make the jump from hunting deer to harder to kill slash find game like mountain goat and sheep? Um, geez, I find deer pretty hard to kill sometimes. So I don't know. Um, I think the biggest, and I'm not, I don't think this is a skill. The biggest hurdle in my mind going from deer hunting to, um, big mountain hunts. I'm, I'm, I'm saying mountain hunts as in mountain goat and sheep. Um, is the logistics of the trip itself. I think if you are, if you're a big, if, if you are used to hunting deer in the Alpine, you know, spot and store, glassing, 
um, and, you know, just general mountain practices, you know, like appropriate camp locations, um, sourcing water, being solo and isolated for a week or more. Um, if you're comfortable with those things, I don't think there's much of a, it's not much growth needed to get into mountain goat and sheep hunting other than the logistics of the trip. And that is, that's just dollar signs. Um, typically, um, you're going to be traveling further to a, you know, you, you, you're going to be tra- traveling further and you're probably going to be in the bush longer. So that's going to mean more food, more layers, more, more planning and definitely more money, more money for fuel, um, more time you're going to be spending. You're probably going to sacrifice a couple extra travel days. That's the, that's the biggest in my mind. That's what jumps out at me. The most is the logistics of the trip. It's not actually the hunting that requires an extra skill. I mean, sure. There's an extra skill in, um, age, aging of the animals. So if you're looking for a, I mean, it's very easy to count four points on a mule deer. It's not so easy to count eight rings on a sheep or to tell a nanny from a billy goat. Um, so that would be, that's a, that's a, that's something you can do at home is just practice and practice and practice. And I mean, if you can get some field experience, if you can, um, go out and see some, some sheep, in the Okanagan or something like that and, you know, get used to looking at them and same with some goats, you know, if you, if you can, you know, there's, there's goats around, you, you just start asking people and you'll, you find out where some goats are, you can go and have a look at. They're the things that jump out at me now. And that's because my hunting background is in big country. Like I'm in the Alpine. This is, that's what I do. So it, it's, it seems like an easy an easy, not an easy thing, but a, a very um, similar experience. Spending time in the mountains and looking for animals through the glass. Uh, one thing I will say, and this is something that um, Nick pointed out, which I think is really cool. Um, and I don't know if this is just like circumstance for the hunts that he's been on with me, but hard. Uh, what? Do they, how do they explain it? He said, um, "La." Uh, luck will get you a deer and hard work will get you a mountain goat. <laughs> and uh, to me that like, yeah, you, a deer that's moving in and out of the timber and, you know, you really do need to, you know, deer aren't that patentable. Um, like, at, of course, of course they you know have a bit of a, a bit of a pattern, but you know, a, a deer may, a deer that you see on opening day might not be there again for a week. You might not see him again for a week or you might not see him ever again. Uh, so a bit of luck. Nick thinks that a bit of luck will get you a deer, but hard work where you can, as long as you're prepared to go uphill and climb and risk your biscuit, um, you can normally take him out and go off the hill. I thought that was a cool little analogy, but that might just be circumstantial for the, the few hunts that he's been on with us. Yeah, now if you were coming, if you were a, hunter that was very very much um like a timber hunter or like a still hunter if you were coming from the blacktail woods and then all this next thing you're going into the high alpine looking for sheep and goats um yeah you've got 
some serious skills that need to be developed. Um, and that's not, I don't know. It's the, I think the biggest skills you're going to need to develop are just your general mountaineering skills. I'm not talking crampons and axes and ropes here. I'm talking about, um, yeah, where are you going to find water? How far is an appropriate distance from camp to water? How much water can you carry? Um, is your kit dialed? Like, do you like are you rocking in in jeans and flannelette shirts? Because you're probably gonna die. Uh, you're not gonna die, but you you're not gonna be as comfortable. You you know you want to have some technical gear. Um, one thing that I comes up a lot. Um, it came up on our recent goat hunt this year is campsite location. Um, like camping on ridges is never a good move. Uh, the wind up there, you're too exposed. Things like that. Just generally spending time in the mountains, you <clears throat> you learn this stuff generally through a mistake when you pick a shitty campsite and something bad happens, um, like your tent blows away. Uh, that's what's going to teach you those lessons. That they would be so yeah from, from the the timber hunter or the the dedicated truck hunter that's now going to go backpack in for sheep. Um, you got some stuff to learn and it's mostly to do with, um, in my mind, it's mostly to do with how you conduct yourself in the mountains, where you're camping, how you camp. You, you just need to learn how to backpack in general. Follow-up question from Wilderness Locals. Again, follow-up question. What do you think the most important skill to have refined? What do you think the most important skill to have refined on the mountain? Um, not sure if I'm dyslexic and I can't read or if that just doesn't make a ton of sense I'm gonna I'm gonna read it and interpret as what is the most important to skill what is the most important skill to have on the mountain oh I mean like that could go a lot of ways um, that could go a lot of ways I think that the most important skill to have um, I'm going to just like, I'm just going with my gut here. My first impression is it's going to be to do with remaining calm and being able to make calculated decisions. That's I'm going to, I'm going to say the most important skill to have is just to be able to keep your wits about you. All right. You'd be able to keep your brain switched on at all times and, and just stay in the game. And that's going to serve a multitude of purposes. Um, Number one, safety. Like if shit hits the fan, you cut yourself, you fall, you break something. Uh, it's going to be really important that you can that you, you 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 haven't turned your brain off and you're able to stay focused and think about what you need to do. Or if your hunting partner's hurt, like what do I need to do to get my friend out of this situation? What do I need to do to stay safe? Um, that's obviously the most important reason. But then also, yeah, just. To, Stay in control of your, your, your mind. Um, if the hunt's not going to plan, this is one that I see a lot. If the hunt's not going to plan and you start getting in your own head and beating yourself up, this hunt friggin' sucks. There's no animals here. Uh, I'm going to move. Um, and that negative thinking is going to bring up negative results. 100%. I believe that, you know, to, to the grave that... What if you, if that's the way you if that's the way you're thinking that's what's going to happen. You just you need to stay positive. You need to stay in it. Um, I think that's a really big one. Yeah, just 
That's the that's the skill. I know that's kind of kind of kind of boring, but I think keeping your brain in the game. You know what I mean? Just keeping your wits about you, staying switched on. That's be comfortable with being alone. Again, that's in your head. Like you, your head will fuck you up if you let it. If you're not careful, your head will absolutely fuck you up. You need to stay switched on. And it's signed off. This <laughs> the the message is signed off. Sir Richard Shooter. I like that. All right, and then I had a couple of questions here from Eric Schatz. And uh, in classic Eric Schatz fashion, he starts with a somewhat of a heavy hitter. What aspects of or questions around hunting do you wrestle with most, if any? What aspects of or questions around hunting do you wrestle with the most? Well, I'm wrestling with that question because that's a friggin' mouthful, Eric. Um, hmm. I definitely... Uh, I find myself uh, at times. I need to I need to do a bit of a gut check to find to just just to remind myself what. Like for instance, where I'm hunting right now, and I've got the the trail cameras to back it up. The trail cameras are keeping me motivated, um, but I'm not seeing anything. Like when when my, when I've got boots on the ground, I'm not seeing what I'm seeing on the trail camera. So then I get into my head a little bit about. Uh, I just want to get, I just want to get one of these things, um, and then naturally you start thinking, I just want to kill this thing. Like I just want to, I just want to kill this thing, <clears throat> and I catch myself every single day that I'm hunting. I catch my. I catch myself driving out there and then hiking. You know, I've got all that time to hike and I, I catch my, I'm, I'm in the mentality of like, I'm just, I, I just want to kill. I just want to kill one of these things. I just want to kill one. I just want to kill one. And that's not, obviously that's like, obviously that's the objective. I'm hunting Christ's sake, but I have to, I catch myself and I bring myself back that to kill one of these an- to to kill the target animal isn't is obviously the objective but it's not what I'm going to take away from the experience um and I need to remind myself that uh you know I'm incredibly fortunate to be spending time in the mountains and to be spending time in pursuit of these animals that one's that, that's just that's just f- fresh off the fresh in my mind Eric so hopefully that somewhat answers your question um yeah it's the I get to try and simplify it it's the don't get caught up in the I find that I will get caught up in the killing of the animal but that's and I mean that just happens um but the big picture is 
that's not what I come away with. I come away with the memories of spending time in the mountains with good people or by myself or just, you know, I've been you know, taking Edith, my, my three-year-old daughter, out in the bush, like spending time with her in the bush. Like we haven't killed anything. We haven't killed any animals together, Edith and I, but like we have, I have a ton of fun. Like they're some of the best hunting trips that I've done this year. And, you know, typically we're just sitting in the car and, driving through likely bear country with no intention of actually hunting any bears. We just, let's go see a couple of bears or let's go see a couple of grouse. Um, and just, you know, having those experiences with her and not killing anything. So that's something I, I don't know if I'm wrestling with it, but I am aware of a fault in my thinking and it's just getting caught up in it. It's just getting caught up in spending time pursuing something. And then, you know, not getting immediate success. Hopefully that was somewhat, hopefully that, uh, hopefully I don't sound like a crazy person. Oh, question number two, most memorable hunting experience and why? Um, geez. Most memorable. I'm going to say my first year, hundred percent, like my first year. Uh, this is with, uh, yeah, but like one of my best mates back home, Baden, uh, him and I, we got into hunting together, um, the exact same timeline, everything we, the inception of the idea came from the same place for both of us. And then we went through the steps together. So getting, getting my first year with him. It was a, a samba deer back home in Australia uh, with a 30-30 with iron sights at probably like 15 yards. And it was what what I now know was, like at the time I had no idea, it was, it was, it was spot and stalk hunting. Um, although predominantly samba deer are hunted using a still hunting technique. They're very similar to blacktail. They're very elusive deer species, but they're big. Like they're getting up to the size of an elk. They're, they're big deer and, um, yeah, very big, real gnarly looking face on them. They're crazy. They're Google Samba deer. Um, and then text me what you think is that they're nuts, those things. Um, but we were hunting a, uh, we were hunting some land and it was where we, learned to hunt, learned to everything. I think Baden still frequents this. It was private property. Uh, I think it was like 3,500 acres, something like that. So, and there was lots of different terrain. There was hills, there was bush. Um, there was lots of draws and valleys. There was ag land. So, you know, it, it made for a prime deer habitat. It really did. Um, we weren't skilled in still hunting. We had no friggin' idea about it. Like, you know, like, I had no idea that you could move silent through the woods if you just slow down enough. Um, so yeah, then we, we spent, uh, we would spend our days looking over the, the big, the, the, the big open drawers and the, into the, going to the valleys. And, uh, I think we must probably the last day of our hunting trip that we had time to spend up there and, a stag and a couple of, Hines came out of the 
a bush and we're feeding right down the bottom of this hill, right, right down the bottom. Um, and it was, it was, the sun was going down and we just went, uh, like I was, we were both super interested in getting a deer down and, uh, like, I mean, we, we really just wanted to get our, get our hands in it and get the meat and just have that experience, especially have that experience together. So we made a last ditch effort, tum- like crawled on our bellies down this hill, actually probably, probably slid on our butts more likely because it was so steep, slid on our butts when the deer were down feeding, um, got in real close. Now they looked at us a few times, but we kept getting in closer, getting in closer. We ended up getting into a, into a creek just by where the deer were feeding. Um, and we kind of figured that if we climbed up out of the creek, you know, we'd get a pretty, we'd be in rifle range of where the deer should be. But we climbed up out of this creek and the, 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 the stag, young stag, uh, had, had fed right to the creek. And the, as soon as I poked my head up, up and over the, the stag was right there within 15, 20 yards. Um, so yeah, it was nice having that 30-30 that you can throw up to the shoulder nice and quick and get a quick sight picture. I threw that up and, uh, <laughs> I mean, crazy to admit, I don't know where I aimed. I aimed at deer and ended up, well, the, the deer went straight down, so I made a damn good shot. But uh, yeah, it was a cool experience for the two of us and we really had no idea what we were doing the term butchering comes to mind <laughs> i mean we got it sorted we got all the meat out of there um it was a hell of a hike back up that mountain with all that with that deer because it was steep and we weren't in what you would now what i would now call mountain shape by any means we were we'd probably already you know like we'd probably already done a bunch of kilometers that day and we're probably already ruined um I took the antlers off that deer. I mean, it was just a little, it was a spiker, really. It wasn't, no, it was a spiker. I took the antlers off that deer and made two knives, two matching knives. So, and one for me, one for Baden, my hunting partner there. Um, so, yeah, that's probably my most memorable hunt. And I've still got that knife today. I've, when I moved to Canada, I used that knife to butcher my first few um, big game animals. Um, my first mule deer, first two mule deer, and my first black bear I used that knife on and then I had a scare and I thought I lost it up by um uh, where was that up by Lac Lahash. I thought I lost it stuck into a stump and I was just heartbroken I did I was I was truly heartbroken and then I went out and bought another new knife to replace it and it just obviously wasn't the same and then I found the knife and then I retired the knife then I'm like All right, I'm not how shitty that felt to lose this knife. I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to use it anymore. I'm just going to hold on to it and then I'll probably give it to one of my kids. So that's my most memorable hunt. I imagine that's probably a similar story for, for most people, you know, their first big game animal. <laughs> Question three from Eric. Desert Island. I, th- I assume he's, I assume that I'm on Desert Island. Dairy, Dairy Queen blizzards or deer meat? I assume that's like, I'm not sure if it means that's my last meal or that's the meal that I, or that's the food that I'm going to sustain myself on. Um, dude, I'm going with Dairy Queen blizzards all day, all day. Uh, 
and I have good reason for this. There's no... I think I'm going to survive longer on the blizzards than I am on the, on the DME. Yep. I think I'm going to be... I mean, neither are going to be great as just a standalone, unless I can have the whole deer and like eat everything. I'm, if a bit of, I'm, I imagine you're just thinking like just a bit of meat. That's man. I'm, yeah, I'm doing the blizzards. I don't care if I'm going to die on desert island. I'm eating blizzards because they're good. Um, he's got a bunch of questions here. I'm going to skip over a few of them. Uh, question number six from Eric. The hardest part of a hunt, hardest hunt or part of a hunt you've ever experienced and why? Um, I sh- uh, like by hard, when you say hard, the first thing that comes to mind is like physical exertion. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the way he intended it, but that's the way it comes across. But um, I don't If if it's if the question's about physical exertion, I don't I don't relate that to being hard because I I do prepare I do prepare myself a lot in the off season to try and be in good physical shape. I'm not trying to big note myself and I'm certainly not like some fit mofo. I'm definitely not a crossfitter like you, Eric. Um but the you know, if it's a tough hike or whatever, like that that does make it hard. I I am gonna say, I, I think the hardest part and this is um mentality I'm going to say mentally hardest I've got two examples actually um 2019 archery mule deer hunting trying to keep my trying to keep a positive mindset it wasn't actually not a positive mindset I was very positive in that hunt trying to just remain mentally strong like uh on that hunt I really missed my family I really missed my wife I really missed my kids um compound that with uh low calories i didn't have you know i I, admittedly i packed a little tight on food on that hunt um for my daily intake i should have had i should have had more food and i didn't so i was a little bit hungry um i was going on i was i was really pushing the boundaries physically on that hunt i was uh and like this this isn't what made it hard, but this contributes to my 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 condition. I'm gonna not my condition, my mental condition. Um, so I was re- I was really I was burning the candle at both ends physically, and then I wasn't putting a lot of calories back in. Um, there were long days, obviously long days on the glass. That's mentally tiresome. Uh, you know, you sp- spend any period of time glassing, you you. Uh, you feel tired afterwards and then going on stalk after stalk after I stalked a minimum of two times every day, every single day for, I think we're in there nine days, every single day, a minimum of two stalks. Um, and when you're on those stalks, you know, you're switched on to 11, like you are switched on, you go on slow, like every, everything is, uh, on, high alert you know you hear a twig snap 100 yards away like bing what was that um and then you know to be coming back to camp after each of those stalks each of those stalks 
I was really like I found myself I was really emotional I missed my family I wanted to see my family I wanted to see my wife and my kids um a, a, a hunting mentor of mine um, I remember this too yeah a hunting mentor of mine had just passed away just like a couple of days before we went on that hunt and that kept coming back in my mind this goes back to that skill that I was talking about on Tyler's question having your having your having your head in order you know what I mean if you've got skeletons in your closet, you're going to start digging them up because you're out there thinking you're inside your own head too much. And that's what was going on in this hunt. I was just in my own head a little bit. That was very tough. Very tough. I cried. I cried at least twice on that hunt, like legit tears on my face. Um, and then the other example of, of uh, mental hardship was the goat hunt we just got back on. And I've talked about this at length in previous podcasts, but uh, sorry, I'm sipping the chamomile. Um, after after harvesting the goats and being up on the mountain, and Garrett being in the in the situation he was in, where he was in this um, rocky, jagged valley, and he was boot scooting, butt sliding down waterfalls, and throwing his backpack off things and then jumping down waterfalls and just a lot of risk a lot of risk for a couple of stinky goats you know what I mean and then Nick and I are in a situation where I've fallen and hurt myself um and yeah like that that, when that when that first happened I was when I first hurt my shoulder I dislocated my shoulder on that fall I was gonna I was gonna hit the inreach and that's I've, I've only ever hit the inreach once before and that was when I broke my back in a car accident. So like I, I don't take hitting the inreach lightly unlike Taylor Woodcock who hits it on accident and has search and rescue come looking for him when he's glassing. Um, I take it pretty seriously. Like I, So I've gone from that mentality of like, okay, I'm going to have to call the helicopter to nope, I think I'm going to be okay. I'm going to get back to camp. Um, that was really tough just to stay mentally strong in that situation. The, the, just the, the combination of things. Garrett in a shitty situation, us in a shitty situation. Um, grizzly bears about. We're at elevation. We're trying to get up. We're trying to get back down to the river bottom. We got two dead goats to deal with. Um, yeah, the hardest thing is 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 in your head. Definitely, your head's that's whatever's going on in there. Um, his final question is. Are you aware how amazing your hair looks on camera? And yes, I am. Thank you, Eric. All right, I think that'll probably do for questions now. Um, there's a bunch more that came in that were more directed to Nick, and I'd, I'd love to get Nick to. I'd love to get Nick to answer them because he'd be able to do them justice, whereas I'm not. <laughs> I didn't miss any good ones in here, did I? Nope. There's, I got I got all the good one. I got all the ones that were like really jumping out at me. There were some other ones there, and if I didn't get to them, I'm sorry. Um, if I didn't get to your question, I will. Uh, the ones that I think Nick should answer, I'm going to get him to. There was a bunch of hockey ones that came in. I'm not very good at hockey, and there were some uh, camera specific ones. And like Nick is definitely the the superpower when it comes to cameras and stuff. I'm just the lowly apprentice that tries 
unsuccessfully sometimes. Um, yeah, so if I didn't get to your question, Nick will probably handle it. If not, we might do one of these again in the future. I hope everyone's, I hope, I hope that's somewhat interesting. <laughs> do, um, yeah, like I wanted to give you guys an opportunity. Like I was kind of thinking that you guys might ask more questions about the like previous guests. If some, you know, if you had a question about someone, someone that's been on a podcast in the past, but, uh, Hey, I really enjoyed the questions guys. And, um, I'm going to try and up the frequency here. Like I said, I want to try and put out something I'm proud of opposed to something that, uh, I've sort of just slapped together. So if the frequency's down, it's because I'm trying to keep the quality up. Um, that's where I'm at on that. Anyway, guys, thanks for, thanks for listening. And, uh, yeah, send, send in your feedback. Let me know what you guys thought of this one. Really appreciate it. Thank you.